Welcome to this special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with New Yorker staff writer and the author of the new book, Finale, Late Conversations with Stephen Sondheim, D.T. Max. Before the pandemic even started, D.T. began doing a profile for The New Yorker on Stephen Sondheim, and he had a number of interviews with the late maestro to talk about his career, his life, his process, and everything in between. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, that slowed down, and then, of course, Sondheim passed away last year. While portions of what would become the book did appear in The New Yorker after Sondheim's death, DT has collected his thoughts, his notes, his interviews, and his writings into the book finale. It is a wonderful way for musical theater fans to get an inside look at what Stephen Sondheim was like on a very intimate level late in his life. If one of your New Year's resolutions is to read more, and if you are listening to this podcast, I know for a fact that this book will be absolutely something you want to add to the very top of your list. So, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with DT Max. DT, you came into this profile of Stephen Sondheim, like many of us would as a fan, without knowing a ton about him personally or even the the general basics of his biography, which you obviously learned about uh, before and during the interview process. But as you went in to this profile process, this multi-year process with Stephen Sondheim, what was your first I don't know when to say the first impression of him, but the was it different than what you had constructed in your mind, either as a fan or from research, than this mythical figure almost that has kind of been such a huge part of the theater, but as you mentioned throughout the book, had kind of tried to keep a distance between who he is personally and who he is professionally? Uh, sure. I mean, just, well, first of all, to, I actually knew quite, in quite a bit about um, Sondheim, what I deliberately decide when you do a long profile, which is what I was working on for the New Yorker, you know, you have to let the other person speak. Otherwise you don't really have what you need. And so for instance, um, let's say that you know that uh, I know Sondheim grew up in New York. Um, you know, so if you say to Son- if you would say to Steve, you know, uh, Oh, so you grew up in New York. That's interesting. You know, you might just kind of grunt. Whereas if you say to uh, Sondheim or anyone, so where did you grow up and, and what did you think of it? You know, then you get yourself, you get something from a person, you open them up. So I think it'd be more accurate to say that I kept myself deliberately in the dark on certain things that I wanted him <laughs> to tell me, um, which, of course, you could Google probably in 15 minutes. <laughs> Make that five minutes. <laughs> um, but I came in, I believe, you know, with a deep love for the music. A lot of the music had been absolutely central to everything about my life. And that was really my calling card with him, with him was that I was, I was, you know, I was somebody he wanted to reach with his music. You know, it was just, I wasn't like an absolutely insane kind of fan who could quote back to him, you know, details of productions that he knew because he knew them, but just somebody who could say like, your music really changed my life and it lives in my head. Because I just kind of thought that's probably in the end, both who I am uh, and who he would want to meet. So back to your question, you know, I think the biggest surprise, I've been an interviewer for a long time at the New Yorker and elsewhere. 
And famous people, I mean, you probably know this yourself, you know, tend to let you know they're famous in some way. There's a lot of different ways famous people can let you know they're famous, um, either by just letting you know they're famous or, you know, sort of denying it so emphatically that you're left to, you know, to um, obviously know they're famous. And Steve really wasn't that. He, he, he had a very, he was interested. This was a surprise. He was really interested in other people. He was interested in me. He was interested in people I talked about. You know, he had maintained his censors kind of out there in a way that just, you know, wasn't what I expected at all. And that obviously seems like that is part of being not only something that is essential to your job as as an interviewer and a writer, but his job as a an artist and a writer of a different sort and kind of a chronicler of life in general did as you kind of talked to him about his process was that curiosity and that genuine interest in other people both on the personal and larger level did that seem to not only go from his personal life but also to his writing as well you know i'd like to say yes but i actually don't don't think that it necessarily Hmm. did it was more like something that he just had that he absolutely could not you know get rid of because i mean there's lots of great artists who are not remotely curious about other people and yet somehow can can create great art about other people you know it's not it's not like i mean i would say more likely it might be one reason why he kind of like journalists actually to tell you the truth it was probably more operative in the fact that like you know he kind of liked journalists he liked journalism he liked the processes of journalism because it was a kind of a puzzle and as we all know sondheim loved puzzles um so maybe i'm missing a larger point there but i actually think his art was not really that dependent you know you think about his work right matt you go through all that work i mean where would this i don't know i mean feel free to disagree i don't i don't necessarily see it because you know his art was it was the craft that was so amazing at least for me and the discipline um and you know there's not I mean, again, and 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 the and the other thing to keep in mind. Sorry, my dog is about to bark. To uh, no, we love it. We love dogs. Well, I'll scratch yeah. him and keep him quiet. <laughs> um, you know, to me, uh, what most stood out in Sondheim's creative processes, both talking to him, literally seeing the music he was working on for the Buñuel, which I did see some of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Buñuel being the musical that he never finished, um, that he was working on in his later years with David Ives, the playwright. Um, it was the craft, it was discipline, the hermetic discipline of his work was really, you know, impressive. And then one more uh, thing, just to keep in mind, Matt, is, you know, I mean, someone else write, wrote the book, right, for all his musicals. Right. So the usual job that someone like me might have of tracing a connection between the writer and his work, which, you know, is which one can do for a novelist, even for other kinds of artists, becomes very difficult with somebody who has book writers. Because, sure, you can say, well, Sondheim obviously chose, you know, Sweeney Todd for a reason. He chose a little night music for a reason, right? But, you know, at least in my conversations with, with Sondheim, he was adamant, you know, adamant that the stories had come from someone else, that they'd come from the book writer, and that he put in the songs. I mean, I think there's a bit of an exaggeration there, but not not so much so that I don't think it's fundamentally correct. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, I think so many people who are just musical theater fans or specific Sondheim fans agree with you that the precision and the, the nuance and the, the talent of the actual music side of what he did is a big part of why they are attracted to his shows. But also I do think that there is something human about his music and lyrics that I think does overlay really well, but in the best shows, 
it seems to be connected very intimately with the book and the book writers and, and in the shows that aren't necessarily as successful, there's a disconnect. So it's, it's interesting to hear that he really wanted to make sure that the people who wrote the books were credited with that part of the process because we all think of them as Sondheim shows, despite whether it's right. Hugh Wheeler or John Weidman or whomever, um, yeah. we're actually doing a large part of the narrative lifting as well. You know, I mean, I do see what you're saying. So if you, I mean, if you look at company, for instance, um, you know, I, I do think that in company you can, you know, you could say this is a guy who is paying attention. You know what I mean? I, I do think that you could say this is, this is a guy who is listening to other people. On the other hand, I don't think that, I mean, to me, a little night music might be the opposite, you know, and yet I think they're both great musicals. Um, so I don't know where I'd come out on it finally. I mean, I come yeah. out with, with, with sort of open mouth admiration probably in the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's very fair. I, and I think we all have that uh, still to this day. I just saw uh, Merrily down at New York Theater Workshop a few mm. days ago. And I, I, I just I was gobsmacked by the thing, you know, whether or not you can. The performances were fantastic, but just take the performances away. And I know there's criticism for for Merrily going back decades at this point. But like just the thing itself exists uh, is special to see with with any Sondheim show. But you... oh, yeah. and, and, and just to hop in there, I mean, I, look, well, he and I in the book, we spend a lot of time. There's a portion of the book where I'm talking with him and the Geminiani's a father and son. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation turns to Merrily, which because uh, the, the younger Geminiani had just been putting it on uh, with, you know, with Fiasco Theater. And um, I swear to God, I do not understand why that show uh, still gets, you know, sometimes says to me, you know, it's, it's, it's your you know, it's the child that gets picked on and you always, you know, <laughs> you always fear, feel defensive. Or I forget exactly what he says. It's in, it's in, it's in finale. But anyway, the point is, I don't get it. I mean, if I don't get why that show butts up against such intense um, antagonisms. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about how they restored a scene uh, in that particular production, uh, which was from the original, uh, you know, Moss Hart book, the Moss Hart play. Um, and it's a spoken scene with no music. And I didn't think, you know, it was, it was meant to explain, I think, why Franklin Shepard's such a, you know, I don't know what words we're allowed to use on. on a, whatever you want, whatever you want. Why well, is such a prick? Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, to me, it doesn't need explanation. I mean, there are people like that. You know, he's created with his music, you know, and his and and his words, a completely convincing portrait. Of, you know, I mean, to me, Alan Alda played him from the beginning. You know, I mean, he's like, like that kind of guy. And so, but anyway, that was his, his feeling was that maybe if a scene was back in there, that would really, you know, nail down his childhood wound. I think that's really what the scene is about, if I remember, about not being respected by his father. Um, then that would solve it for critics. But I, I mean, I never, that's not a show I ever had a problem with in any, even the smallest way. The first time, I think I first saw it at the York Theater in like 93, if that makes sense, around then. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I just could not believe it. Just, this is exactly what it feels like. Yeah, no, I saw both the fiasco and this New York Theater Workshop version. Actually, the last time I saw Sondheim in person was at the fiasco. I think I was at the first preview and he was oh, wow. sitting a few rows behind me. But it's interesting, and I wasn't going to dive into this, but it's interesting you mentioned in that scene that they restored that Franklin is trying to heal some sort of childhood wound of neglect from his father. Right. Sondheim very much has those stories in his background, both from semi-abandonment from his father and, and an overbearing and perhaps even abusive mother uh, right. as well. Um, 
So it's interesting that as we talk about whether or not he observes things from other people and brings them into the story, even, you know, somebody who has no um, background in Freudian analysis can probably find some connections between the importance of including that scene and Sondheim, the writer himself. Yeah. And I mean, and company lends itself with the whole three way thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mary Roger is very much in the news, presumably as the, uh, as, as the, the, you know, the female of the three, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying one can't do it. There's a moment in finale where I try it out on him. I don't know if you remember this, but we're at the pen gala together. And I, and, you know, I start by saying, you know, are you often, you know, we basically talk about being mistaken for your characters. And and Sondheim says, yeah, I get that a lot. And I say, what about Bobby? And he says, yeah, I get that a lot. Because, you know, I mean, I think even when it came out, people thought, oh, Bobby is obviously a closeted version of Sondheim, right? Um, uh, and then I said, what about Franklin Shepard? And he said, actually, he's the exact opposite of me. No, that was interesting. I mean, he was pointing out that he wasn't in it for the money, you know, that the contract... As Franklin Shepard jokes, you know that moment in in um uh in in Merrily when um you know so there's that interview and he's asked what comes first, you know the words or the music and yeah. and he says the contract, right? That was a joke that both Sondheim and I loved and kind of kicked it back and forth to each other while while we were talking. But anyway, he said there's pieces of me, you know, there's pieces of me in all of them. He says I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but you know there are pieces of me in all of them, but none of them is I think he would have said remotely me, you know. He said, I couldn't write them if there wasn't some of me in all of those characters. Um, uh, but I couldn't, you know, and I couldn't have written them otherwise. So, I mean, I think that's that's fair enough. Uh, and more than actually I expected him to give me on that on that front. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is it, for somebody who has been fairly guarded over the years, despite being the subject of many profiles and many books, as you as you talk about and having written books himself about his work and his process, um, he always did maintain a little bit of a, a disconnect between what he wanted people to see and and know about him uh, and his and you know kind of always championing the work rather than yeah, himself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Matt, in a way, I mean, to, if we if we move out of like the sort of psychoanalytics of it, though, there's yeah. certainly rich. I mean, he also comes out of what you would have to call the modernist you know, tradition, right, in art, like T.S. Eliot and so forth, where, you know, uh, or Flaubert, descendants of Flaubert, if you like, where, you know, the artist is is everywhere, you know, is everywhere heard, or I forget the cliche, but never seen, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, good art hides the art. And I do think he felt that really strongly. And then again, as you point out, he had this dysfunctional childhood. Um, you know, by the time I meet Sondheim, so he's 87, I think, when I meet him. So, you know, there's certain things that are practically shtick for him. And we talk about that, like yeah. his, 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 um, you know, his mother, this, this, um, difficult, manipulative, you know, seductive kind of person in his telling, right. Foxy Sondheim. I mean, you couldn't give her a better name. Uh, you know, um, it still hurts him though. It's interesting. Like I can remember when he, he, he said about his mother that she was a star fucker and he kind of stumbles on it for a moment. He's like star and then he says it. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, like you're 87. I mean, your mother's yeah. been gone 20, 30 years, but this thing is still, you know, and you've said, you've talked about this a lot of times, but still, I mean, he alluded to two therapists, two shrinks, um, and fairly long holes with both of them, if I remember right, from from finale. So, 
and it's still like just right in front of him. So I think we would be we would be foolish to discount the importance of that in his creative life. It's just exactly where do you go? That's that's the hard part. Like where do you go with that? You know, where do you go with that information? Do you go right to Sweeney Todd? You know, do you go? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, I mean that's that's the tricky part. Uh, how do you apply it, you know, without a license, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a license of, of many kinds there. Right, exactly. One of the things that I really found interesting to, to read in the book, especially as we've kind of seen uh, since his passing this rise of people who have had some sort of relationship with him, if it was nothing more than exchanging letters. He, he talks multiple times. You ask him about whether or not he likes to talk to people on the phone. And he says, oh, I used to, but I really just want to be left alone at this right. point. It's it's this idea that people always wanted to have a connection with him. And it seems like to a certain extent, he enjoyed that at, at, at some point and reaching out to people and, and hearing from them and then also responding. Um, but then towards the end of his life, he just kind of either got tired of it or got tired in general uh, and moved on to just kind but of not, wanting to yeah. live in peace, but no, but go not ahead. That, not, let me say, I mean, all, all, all that, all that's definitely true. Yeah. You know, but he got less tired than you would think. Well, I that's mean, what I was going to ask. Like, it yeah. seems like he was very open with you. So it wasn't that he didn't want, he just wanted to be a hermit and live by himself. But so I wondered how much of that was, I don't know, a, like you said, a shtick that he just kind of gave out as he mm -hmm. got older. Well, I mean, I think, I think a bunch of things that come to mind right off one, you know, he, even as I've sort of talked about the book at various places, I'm I'm absolutely astonished at how many uh, people who've written musicals come forward and say, you know, I was I uh, you know we did this workshop and then someone said, can I bring someone, you know? And I'm like, sure. And then the guy walks in and he's like, hi, I'm I'm Steve Sondheim, you know. <laughs> and then, but the, so that's enough to make you crap your pants, right? But then afterward, he would like give notes. I mean, he would he would give them a couple of pages of notes, like just good smart you know notes and you're like what is that about i i mean again i i don't know i i don't know it maybe that's just part of the tradition of musical theater but i i hadn't run into it before um that kind of openness you know it would be almost as if a novelist who's who goes to a reading and then you know you know of a work in progress doesn't really happen workshop let's say again and then says you know oh you know i really really enjoyed that and here's just a couple of thoughts about chapter two i mean it takes a lot of work to give someone thoughts about chapter two as opposed to just the shake dance so there's that and then so that's a little bit earlier but even while i'm kind of with him or in and out of his life and, and remember the finale is in a way the story of you know a guy who doesn't in the end want to be profiled, right? I mean, he starts, he stops, he starts, he's very Sondheimian about the whole thing. And there meant there are large portions of, of my time with Sondheim, but I didn't know whether he wanted to be profiled or not, you know? So, and I don't think, I, I, I don't imagine I was the only one in New York wondering if I had something going with Stephen Sondheim. You know, I just think that was probably part of, you know, there were probably book writers who thought maybe they had something going with him, you know, directors, producers, I think he he had mastered a certain kind of um, uncertainty, as you would guess from some of his characters. But the main point is he was still out there. So there's one moment in the in the book I remember very well where he goes to hear a jazz performance of some of his songs, and I thought, you know, it's interesting because I mean he doesn't really have much feeling for jazz. Remember, he says as much to me. He's not, he says, I don't, not that I hate it, 
you know, but he's basically saying, I'm a guy who premeditates stuff. And the very essence of jazz is riffing, right? So he's just not going to be my thing. And okay, that's fair enough. But then he goes off and he and he goes and he sees a performance. And you know, I call him the next day. Uh, and he really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, what made him go to see that? Like, what was, you know, you know what I mean? Like, he didn't need to see yeah. it, was it? And I don't think it was just, you know, I mean, you know, I, it, it was it was Cyril Aimee, if I remember, I, mean, I hope I'm not pronouncing her name wrong, but she's a, a jazz singer. And so, you know, a far, a long distance from Sondheim's core mission. And yet, I don't know, there was something... I guess there was something about him that was like lowercase c curious, like he just was curious, you know, and somehow, whereas most people, I think, or many people who create things really can't just go and see them. I'll give you another example. So, I mean, and also, and, and I should headline this with, he cared about his stuff being performed. Like that's probably what all of this in a way comes under is like, he understood theater was living. He emphasized that theater was living. And he basically was suggesting that if you if you're not performed, you're just not alive anymore. You know, you failed. And so maybe the reason he went to see the jazz performance is proof that he was still, you know, I'm still there, right? Um, but and then, but another example is that just as a joke, I sent him an email at some point when my daughter, who was seven or eight at the time, was in a production of West Side Story. And he was thrilled. I mean, he, I sent him a picture because I thought he'd go, oh, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, because this stuff is regularly butchered all over the suburbs and I'm in a suburb. Uh, but he was really pleased with it. He said it was the youngest performance he'd ever seen, but he said it like with admiration. I mean, I don't know. I think he really, 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 really wanted to be performed. I mean, I just think that was, especially as he got older and maybe even as he was finding that the new stuff wasn't coming so well to him that he you know you could see the trap would be if if you're not if your old stuff's not being performed um you know then you're kind of in a weird bind where where are you and who are you and you're 87 or 88 i mean it's for me it's strange that someone who created the works that sondheim created could think that but you know he did i think and again not to psychoanalyze but that probably goes into a lot of the decisions he made in his life and that the the tinkering with merrily or roadshow and and even to the last thing that he was working on, which was part of the idea behind your profile initially, Bunnell, or I guess it was mm -hmm. even, they even said it might be called Square One at one point, um, mm -hmm. which I think yeah. is the same thing, but we never really got complete confirmation of that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it is. I mean, I think it, it, as we were doing fact checking on a part of this that ran in the New Yorker, we got confirmation that that was square one. Great. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll unconfirm at some point, but that's what we understood. <laughs> yeah. And you said you you got to see parts of it or maybe hear parts of it. And there's yeah. a, a section in the book where Steve was very um, adamant about the difference between it being a workshop and a reading almost to me, it said, as I'm reading this almost, you know, to protect himself from saying, well, it's not there yet. There's a lot of work to do. It's not a finished product kind of thing. But I, I think a lot of Sondheim fans and musical theater fans in general you know, are would were incredibly anxious to see that. And as you said, he really wanted his stuff to be performed. I don't think that this is ever going to be performed. It's probably not in a position that him or his estate would like to see it put out into the world. But as someone who knows it better than the vast majority of, of musical theater fans ever will, um, as you talk to him about this process, and I'm not going to ask you to do like a critical review or anything of it, but like what is out there that, or what's not out there about this show that fans would 
you know, be interested to know about what could have been his final musical? Well, I mean, I, I think first of all, there, there are people who know more than me because there are people sure. who went to the workshops. Yeah. I think it was at the, there was something at the public and, yeah. and, and all of those things. Yeah. I believe there were three overall. So if you get Nathan Lane on your show, he's saying it. To. Yeah. 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 Would love <laughs> I think to. Bernadette Peters saying it too. Mm -hmm. um, but what I know from Sondheim is that you know, and again, I, I think I think it's all in the details, but there was a first act with songs. And then there was a second act written by David Ives, but it didn't have songs, but he knew where the songs would go. Yeah. Now, that's as far as I got. I heard informally that he wasn't that pleased with the songs he had written. But, you know, I mean, that could mean anything. It could mean nothing. So I can't, you know, I can't definitively say that you couldn't say put on, look, I mean, Sondheim's musicals are, first of all, famous for having acts that don't quite, you know, <laughs> <laughs> need each other, right? Yeah. And this is, and remember, this is actually literally a musical that's based on two of Buñuel's movies. So the first yeah. act is Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. The second act okay. is Exterminating Angel. You know, so if you had the first act at a level where you wanted it, uh, I don't know that it would be impossible to put it out there because, you know, it'd be like putting out the first act of Into the Woods, right? I mean, uh, students do that all the time. But this surmises a lot, you know, when, I mean, you know, not only don't I have a, the, a psychoanalytical license, but I also don't have subpoena powers. And so, you know, <laughs> I just took it at, I was trying to understand Sondheim when he would say, you know, the first act is done, you know, I mean, there were moments, so there are moments in finale where he's happy with his work. And then there are moments where he's unhappy with his work. So there's one time when I'm, I think I'm in a taxi on the way to this pen gala with him. And he says, it's going well, and he's gotten a lot done. And then there's another time when I'm up at his country house, in Connecticut, where, you know, I go up about noon and he's there and it hasn't gone well that morning. Um, and he, um, he's, you know, that's when he, if you remember, in, we're in Connecticut, it's, I think the third third section of the book or maybe even the fourth that's the fourth i think and he um he talks about feeling out of date and dated and 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 that i think follows directly he's he talked father used to listen to victor herbert of all of all the people in the world to listen to and how he used to watch his father listening to victor herbert and think he was you know out of date shit as he says and now he's out of date shit. And I, you know, I'm uh, as a, as a fan or as I, as I term it in, in, in finale, a listener, you know, I mean, as a listener, I rushed to his defense quite earnestly, you know, uh, and say, come on, if you had had a good day's work, Steve, you wouldn't be saying this. You know, I'm kind of, I mean, it's ridiculous that I'm having to buck up Stephen Sondheim, you know, the greatest to my mind, you know, the greatest musical composer, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, uh, but I am, you know, and he kind of grudgingly admits, yeah, you know, okay, maybe I would be a little bit more enthusiastic if I'd had a good morning, a good morning working. So it's really hard to know what that first act, you know, I mean, it was obviously singable, it was performable, um, something's down, you know, but I don't know. I've heard nothing. I mean, I don't think the, that anyone has made any announcements about it at all. Mostly what we're getting is just a ton of revivals, which is glorious in its own way, of course. Yeah, it, it really is wonderful. And I happily see them all as many times as they will let yeah, me right. into the theater. Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go on just a, another little kind of big picture question here. As you were going through this process, which was 
multi years, and as you kind of talked about, not only did Sondheim kind of start and stop the process, but obviously the pandemic is, uh, uh, you know, a factor in that whole thing right. as well. When you looked back over the years of of trying to put this book together, and obviously the profile never happened, but you got a a, a, a nice book out of it instead. Were there any? you know, th- threads that you were able to pull together that kind of felt like they were the thing that could show the new, the, I guess, the, the, the Sondheim at the end of his life, who he was in relationship, not only to uh, his previous works, but where he was at the end in the pantheon of musical theater, where he saw himself, I guess, is, is a better way to say it. Like, who did he right. think he was? Uh, you know, in the twilight of his both career and life? Well, I mean, a, a couple of things come to mind. You know, one thing that I cared very much about the book and the, and one of the reasons I, I felt it was worth um, getting it out there despite there being no profile was that I thought that both the fact it took place over so many years and that the con- that the interviews were more like conversations made it different from what you can get, you know, elsewhere on Sondheim. Because certainly he was interviewed by some very talented people. That wasn't the issue but the particular format, so a New Yorker piece is an unusual piece in that I can kind of go and see someone, let's say, 10 times, you know, and I was sort of aiming for 10 times with Sondheim and we got to we got to five. Um, but, uh, you know, so it, what I think you see uh, or I hope that you see that's a little bit different is what an, what a supreme artist looks like, you know, at this particular moment when he's you know, not composing to his satisfaction, but not, let's say, abjectly, you know, dispirited, right? I mean, he's a pretty, he's a pretty game guy in this, in this book. He's full of puns and competition. I love when he and I go out with uh, Meryl Streep and he puts me down in front of Streep. I thought that that's a, one of my personal favorite moments. It's yeah. like, it, that's a badge of honor. Yeah. High school never ends was the headline I wanted to put on that one. <laughs> but, but but anyway, and then, you know, so he does talk at one point really pretty directly about where he stands in the pantheon. And again, I, I think we have to allow for a lot of factors in anything he says involving the moment he says it, you know, we're up at his country house. And again, he's had this bad morning. And he basically says it's shortly before or after he talks about worrying about being out of date. And he says, truly great artists, and he names three, Stravinsky, Picasso, uh, and Gershwin. And he he has named them other uh, other places, I noticed. So that's the three for him, right? He says, truly great artists are able to sort of imbibe, you know, let's say the the rhythms, the the verbalizations, the talk, the the styles of the time they live in and and bring it all into their music. And that's the sign of true genius. In other words, you don't become old fashioned. You, you, so I guess an example, we Gershwin and jazz, although it's a little bit of an unfair example, because I mean, Gershwin only lives to be what 39. Right. So, um, you know, and I'm not so smart that I know that much about Stravinsky, but I get the idea. Um, uh, that, you know, and Picasso is the easiest example, I think in a way of somebody who just brings in new things, you know, and I think I think what Steve believed, uh, and I, I was that you know he was basically an, an old-fashioned songwriter from let's say you know 30s to the 50s that era, you know very very fond of harmony, gifted for sure. Oh, there's a moment I stepped on there, Matt, where um, you know we, in our long relationship I never like 
ever said to him, but you're great, you know, nothing like that, because I think it kind of makes for a difficult. Yeah, I think he had enough of that in his life. I mean, I, I saw people say to him at this gal I went to and I thought he doesn't like that. But anyway, there's this moment um, when uh, he said he was out of date. And I said, kind of, you know, with this little catch in my throat, but 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 Steve, you're you're a genius, <laughs> you know. And in my imagination, like the birds that are t- that are tweeting outside the window in Connecticut, you know, fall silent, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the compressor in the basement shuts off, you know what I mean? Um, water stops running the kitchen. Anyway, so um, he does a little mock salute to me, a little salam. And he says, thank you for the word. It was lovely. Thank you for the word. It wasn't like, you know, thank you for calling me that. It was like, literally, you put the word out there. Like, it's up there. It's, in, it's, it's up between us now. Okay, that's great. And then he goes into the discussion of true genius. So he distinguishes, if you if you like, between genius and true genius. And so for you or me, maybe they'd be like, well, I wouldn't mind being a genius, or I wouldn't mind being a genius of any sort, you know, even a even a half genius. But obviously, you know, this is a man who, uh, on some level, obviously understood what he had achieved, and he worked hard. You know, one of, one of the things I always find so interesting about the Sondheim story, and I don't know if you noticed the mention of this early, early in, in finale is, is how little praise he got right mm-hmm. through the classic works. And there's many, a there's many a man and woman currently, you know, involved in the, in, you know, the, um, you know, the, the um, apotheosis of Sondheim that's going on now, you know, who, if you, if you look at their criticism, you know, they're supportive, but they're also unsupportive. You know what I mean? They're like, I like this. I don't like that. First act, good. Second act, not so yeah, good. I think you, you, know? you reference Frank Rich, I think, in the book, uh, you know, kind of being disappointed in Sondheim. I think it was, it, it might have even been Sunday or something. But, uh, you know, I don't yeah, think it was, it was Rich, although, although that, that I thought he was, you know, again, I'm not great on this stuff. I th- It definitely wasn't Rich. It what could have been, there's, was it John Simon? I, no, Simon just, just hated his work, right? It was, um, I don't know. I may have been subtle enough not to name names. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure anymore. You have to. It's have sticking to look out. I'll go back and look. But yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. But it's definitely true that you know, almost anyone you could say, you know, uh, um, you know, would have had that that issue. On one level, you know, that's the distinction for me between criticism and reviewing. You know, when you're a theater reviewer, you go in there and you go, you know, that was worth your hundred and seventy five dollars. That wasn't right. That's your job. But when you sit back as a critic, you're like, you know, this guy was the most important. Uh, you know, composer, lyricists of the last I mean, 75 years. I mean, I, I'd go further, but others might. I mean, when he goes up, when he bumps up against Gershwin, I, I agree he's he's got a fight. Um, but I, you know, I think that that. But anyway, so that's the, I guess that's my point is that that that's how he at the end, he saw himself as like, I guess you'd say a minus B plus or maybe a clean A minus, <laughs> um, you know, um, but not an A and A was. Stravinsky, Picasso, um, and Gershwin. Um, although not Ira, as we know, he didn't much like Ira's lyrics, but 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 George's music. And I know what do you think in the end about that? I mean, for me, even saying it to you, Matt, so many feelings kind of well up about like, you know, why couldn't you have been more at peace? You know, why couldn't you see what you'd given to all of us? But on the same time, I'm not sure he didn't have kind of a dual vision of the whole thing. And what he was telling me at that yeah. moment was maybe almost sort of, you know, not it wasn't I mean, it was public in the sense he was talking to me for for an article. But I, I, I feel like 
he would have said, well, but there, I, I don't think he would have had trouble with the idea that coexisting with that was the idea that he had, you know, changed musical theater, you know, um, made it more sophisticated, more smart, you know, more, more harmonically inventive, brought it out of the kind of, kind of a geeky era into an era where it was as delicate and complex as the world we live. I mean, I think he would have said yes to all those things, or at least kind of smile with that funny smile he had at the end, you know, that he had a smile of pleasure. So I, I don't think he was, despite those words, you know, in a, I don't think, well, it's really hard. Honestly, it's hard to say, because part of me thinks, you know, what what tougher thing can you say about yourself if you're Stephen Sondheim, right? But on the other hand, he, he didn't say it quite as harshly as I think it reads in the, you know, in the book. I mean, not that there's anything left out, but, you know, you have to yeah. account for body the language. and yeah. Yeah, where we're sitting, it's a pleasant day. You know, he just made a a, a joke that amused him a great deal. Um, I think we'd just been talking about death, if I'm remembering right. But at that moment, or just shortly before, we looked out the window and there was a crew like taking down a tree or pulling pulling away some rubbish, some some down, um, you know, boughs. And he told me this joke that you know the company was called Total Landscape. You know, and that's because they totaled the landscape. So, and he gave a great laugh. It wasn't the funniest joke he'd ever told, but the point was like life was still giving him pleasure. Like he looked out his window, you know, he saw these. It was really, I, I keep comparing it to like a moment like the death of, of Ivan Ilyich, where like, you know, these two, you know, we're in this room, you know, and out back of these guys just hacking away at this tree. Um, anyway, that was, so that's what he thought. Of, that's what he thought at the end, but I, I, I cannot. I cannot tell you whether that means that he felt he had failed or he was, you know what I'm saying? Like it was all of those things. I mean, that's why he made a great interview from my point of view was he was all of those things, you know, at any one time. I mean, it sounds like from your experience, he was just as complex and nuanced as a lot of the shows that we all love that he wrote. So I guess that's exactly what you want. And I did go back and I find that I found the section you were right. It was not Frank Rich. It was Clive Barnes. Clive Barnes. Right. So that makes sense. uh, uh, I'm a little catty there. And I say, then reduced to the, I think I say (laughs) then reduced to the New York post drama critic, but he was somebody who just, I think felt, although I will say Clive Barnes was not as negative as you think. I mean, uh, there are, there are moments I, I don't, didn't read every review he wrote, but he wasn't unaware that he was reviewing like, you know, the premier um, composer lyricist of his time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. But again, like, I think a lot of these critics felt like, you know, when, when the composer lyricist raises the level of his game, well, then it's time for us to raise the level of our game. You know, that's that's what it really feels like, actually. It's like, you know, a really good game of tennis for them. So as a result, when you read the long, long, you know, rows of criticism, you know, it's almost like, oh, he just barely missed again. You know, and then now that he's gone or even, you know, after he stopped producing new work, suddenly everyone is like, wait, you know, this is this this guy is an irreplaceable gem of our theater. It's funny. I guess that's what those dinners at the end of one's life are for, you know, the awards, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's why they're there. Yeah. yeah. And and I think for a lot of people, the critics almost probably look at it like there's a different level of or different standard, different bar that he had to clear than maybe some other folks oh, absolutely. Uh, because of, like you said, those expectations and knowing what he uh, was not only capable of, but also what he was trying to do. Right. Although, well. I mean, I, yeah. But I mean, I would say the tragedy is like, I don't know about you, but I don't really read critics in that way. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't need, I don't, you know, I just want to go and experience the work. Um, 
and you know, and all across all the arts. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't great critics because there are, but I'm just saying that's not part of like, you know, if I take my kids to see a, uh, you know, Sunday in the Park with George and they enjoy both parts of it, you know, I'm not going to go, well, you know, we should really point out that there's a really <laughs> odd disjunct between act one and act two, because, you know, I mean, Sondheim speaks to this in, in, in finale. He says, you know, people gotten used to it. I think that is some of the truth of it. And I think some of the other truth of it, it may be that he didn't get it exactly, you know, I don't know. I just saw Into the Woods, as you probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, Three you know, times. And it's a, yeah. And it's amazing, right? I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, and it certainly doesn't bother me that it's in a way kind of two separate musicals. Um, but I don't know that I could exactly, exactly tell you what the second half, you know, is about in the same way I can the first. Um, now, I don't know if that's, a you know, something that they left unfinished um, because the music was so amazing. You know, I mean, I don't presume to know, um, but I don't walk out of it any less happy for that i really feel like sondheim when you have sondheim's music and and lyrics i just think these things play by their own rules that's probably what that's probably what these the critics did not really quite accept was you know because the way a musical is taken in is just weird right i mean first of all it's seen as a show but then it's seen as then it's heard as songs right i mean how many people know that you know nothing's gonna harm you you know is all is a sinister song right you go to piano bar you know (laughs) And some of these sing it, you think it's a love song, you know, it's a song of nurturing. I mean, it's, but it's obviously plays a more complicated role in the in the musical. But anyway, I don't, we don't have to spend our time on the critics. He he certainly didn't care enough about them to spend much time on them with me, although, of course, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's one of those things where he 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 might not have in the big picture, but you could tell that there are certain things that got under his crawl a little bit and um, oh, yeah. and ate at him, which, you know, again, is fascinating with somebody who achieved everything that that he did but and it's also interesting and i don't don't want to belabor this point i've already said i was going to ask you my last question which i already asked but but no but you 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 talk about these you know the rules of musical theater and and it's interesting that he very much wanted to not necessarily break the rules i don't think but change the rules and yet he is somebody who as you mentioned earlier loves the rules of puzzles and and when you talk about puzzles and games those have very set rules and yet in his professional life and the thing that i'm assuming brought him the most uh you know most joy when at least when it went well is he didn't really care to play by the rules which i I don't know if that's something that says anything other than is kind of an interesting way that my brain latched onto it but uh, it does kind of stand out in a different different way that part of him loved these very strict regimented you know games that you had to play a certain way where Mm -hmm. when he when it came to being a writer he kind of went off on his own and did things that no one else had ever done well yeah although i mean keep in mind that he does that within the rules so i mean he's the two languages i I agree with you big picture what what you're saying is absolutely true on a smaller picture remember he's very in he's he's a he's trained in harmonics he's trained in musicology in a way that you know most so so he's always thinking about the rules that he's playing with when he's writing his, his the you know the harmonies of his songs, and then within the lyric part, and this is one of the ongoing that there's a little bit of a kind of a battle between him and me for him to accept my um, my near rhymes, which I like very much, and you know it's clear that for him a rhyme, you know, is a very very specific perfect type rhyme, yeah, thing, yeah, and so there's a rule where he was absolutely. Um, or almost almost entirely unwilling 
to bend it. So it was kind of really the play between rules, you know, but then you get to the, the larger question about like the constructions they have Sunday in the park. And that certainly breaks rules. I mean, that's certainly, you cannot really, at least I can't find, you know, analogs earlier in the history of, of musical theater remotely, you know, remotely parallel to that or company. I mean, even the, the review style of, you know, of some of the early musicals, you know, is definitely new. So, you know, I, I'd say I'd say yes and no at the same time on that one. <laughs> Which, again, feels very Sondheimian, very uh, Sondheimian, saying yes and no at the same time. Exactly. Well, DT, thank you so much. It's, it's a, a wonderful addition to the Sondheim book shelf. retrospective shelf. I do, at this point, not only flanked by his books, but um, there's so much great stuff. But this is such a unique way to kind of see who he was uh, at that part of his life, which for unfortunately it's the, you know, the, the end of his life, but I think it's a, a great way for people to, to have the opportunity to get to know yeah. him on that level. So yeah. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great rest of your day and, uh, and a great holiday season. And, and the dog barely barked. Thanks, That's man. great. Yeah. We appreciate that. <laughs>